If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Our text tonight is going to be verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then when I get to the end of the message, I'm going to conclude with verses 7 through 9. And our subject this evening is epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. Now, I've been giving you a worldview definition each week from some different perspectives and the worldview definition that I'm referencing this evening is from David Dockery. Uh, this is one that I have referred to before, but I want to include it here in its entirety. Uh, Dr. Dockery is the president of uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, was at Union University for many years, and also at uh, Trinity in Chicago. And he is a foremost scholar on biblical truth and uh, on matters of worldview uh, especially. And here's what he said. He said, A Christian worldview is a coherent way of seeing life, of seeing the world distinct from deism, naturalism, and materialism, whether in its Darwinistic, humanistic, or Marxist forms, existentialism, polytheism, pantheism, mysticism, or deconstructionist postmodernism. Such a theistic perspective provides bearings and direction when confronted with New Age spirituality or secularistic and pluralistic approaches to truth and morality. Fear about the future, suffering, disease, and poverty are informed by a Christian worldview grounded in the redemptive work of Christ and the grandeur of God, as opposed to the meaninglessness and purposeless uh, nihilistic perspectives of Nietzsche, Hemingway, Cage. A Christian worldview offers meaning and purpose for all aspects of life. So what Dockery is doing is he is uh, comparing and contrasting the Christian worldview with these other ways of thinking that are dominant in our culture that actually are bearing the fruit a lot of what I, a lot of what I was referring to earlier. Uh, these are the systems that bear that rotten fruit and systems that if we care anything about knowledge and truth that we want to be aware of. I want to give you a little bit of review as I've been doing as we've been going along in developing a, a biblical Christian worldview. And a biblical worldview answers six key questions, and we've gone through these, but they relate to origin, identity, chaos, purpose, morality, and destiny. So it's a full scope of where we came from, what went wrong, what's the solution, and then how are we to live for God, and then ultimately what is our destiny as we look uh, to God for our hope and for our strength. We also compared and contrasted the doctrine of general revelation, which is how God has revealed himself through general truths in nature, and then the doctrine of special revelation, which is God giving us his word that's inspired and errant, infallible, and sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And God has revealed himself through the living word, who is Jesus, and then the written word, which I've said several times, is also living, uh, which is the Bible. And from there, we began to build the framework of a meta-narrative. And the meta-narrative basically being the big story of the Bible. It's the broad, sweeping scope of understanding about what the Bible teaches. It's an interpretation of events and circumstances that provide a pattern or structure for our beliefs and it gives us meaning to our experiences. So within that meta narrative, the story of the Bible begins with creation. Uh, it took a turn with the fall, 
It points to redemption, and then ultimately the Bible finds its pinnacle in restoration. It's what God is doing to renew his creation, to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus, and all that God has planned for the ages. From there, we talked about critical thinking, and the uh, quote that I gave on critical thinking is that critical thinking is the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and or evaluating information gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. So there is a difference between critical thinking, which is characterized by an intellectually disciplined process and the emotionalism that we see that many decisions are made by. And there's a lot that we're seeing with a lot of what's going on in, uh, in contemporary news and so on. It's just emotionally driven. And it doesn't have a lot, whole lot to do with critical thinking or truth or anything else. It's just opinions. It's, it's, it's um, emotional uh, thinking based on whatever my preference might be about a, a given circumstance. And we want to be people who have sharp critical thinking skills that are shaped by truth. And we want our critical thinking skills to guard our minds and to cause us to test all things so that we're not spoon-fed by a culture that wants us to believe something that is contrary uh, to the Bible. And then last, you focused on theology. and Theology being the study of the nature of God, uh, coming from two words, uh, theos for God and logos for the word. Uh, theology is principally concerned with the nature of the divine. So when we think about theology, we're thinking essentially about the study of God. We're, we're thinking about who God is, how we relate to him, how we know him, and how we're to live for him. Theology intersects with the meta narrative, and it does so because it helps us understand the meta narrative of the Bible. It gives us this framework. So a study of theology helps us learn about the character of God, how we can know him, how we can live for him, how we can share the gospel, how we can advance the kingdom, how we can guard against error. And in this particular uh, section of our study, uh, we're moving from theology to epistemology. Now I'm also going to cover as we go along, and I'll define this and kind of lay it out as we go through this, but I'm also going to cover ontology, cosmology, eschatology, Axiology and also praxeology, and this will all fit together and make a lot of sense uh, by the time we're done. So now let me give you a definition of epistemology and what it even is or what it means, because if you've not had any formal study in philosophy or otherwise, you might not even know what the word means or what the concept is even about. Epistemology means the study of knowledge. So if you want a really simple definition, it is how we know what we know. That's what epistemology is. It is the philosophical study of the nature, the origin, and the limits of human knowledge. And it's also referred to as the, the, the theory of knowledge. So what is knowledge? How do we get it? Where does it come from? What do we do with it? And in a biblical worldview, uh, Scripture reveals knowledge, and it reveals knowledge using God's own words. Epistemology, as I've already mentioned, has a long history within philosophy. Uh, it started uh, the, uh, in the branch of philosophy specifically uh, with the ancient Greeks. It continues on today 
It has elements of metaphysics and logic and ethics, and it's one of the four main branches of philosophy. Aristotle in the 300s said, philosophy begins in a kind of wonder or puzzlement. Nearly all human beings wish to comprehend the world they live in, and many of them construct theories of various kinds to help them make sense of it all. So what I want to do is I want us to work our way through these verses in Proverbs chapter 2, and I want us to think about this whole idea of knowledge. How do we get it? What do we do with it? What are, what are the implications and, and the outcomes of it? So I'm going to begin reading here in Proverbs 2 and verse 1, and I'll go through verse 6 as we get started. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, obviously, the world has many answers concerning where knowledge comes from. If you were to ask people uh, who think about these things at all, where knowledge comes from, you might get answers like tradition or religion, experience, uh, logic, science, or from a biblical perspective, revelation. And I think the, uh, the driving one today, as I've already mentioned, is personal preference infused with a lot of emotion. And we see this is rampant. Personal preference infused with a lot of emotion that may or may not have anything to do with truth as God has given it to us. And what we know does not originate ultimately from earthly teaching, but rather it originates from heavenly teaching. So I would say that we do not really discover it, but rather we receive it by faith and in humility. And that's, that's an important distinction because if the way we get knowledge is dependent on our ability to discover it, then that puts us in the driver's seat and we could even be the source of our own knowledge. But if we're seeing it from a revelatory perspective, then we understand that it's something that God has shown to us. Remember, going all the way back to general revelation and special revelation. So what I would hold to and be a proponent of is revelatory epistemology, meaning that what we know, we know by revelation. What we know, uh, the knowledge that we have, has been given to us and revealed to us by God. And if we believe that God is holy and we believe that God can be trusted and we believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us, then we would put those together and we would say, because God can be trusted, and he's revealed his word to us, then his word can be trusted because God and his word uh, go together. And he would give us something that is trustworthy that we can follow after. Now, I reference Carl F.H. Henry uh, periodically, and he wrote the series God, Re God, Revelation, and Authority. And it's a multi-volume series that goes way into depth on these uh, particular issues. Uh, but he said this in something that he wrote entitled The Drift of Western Thought. And here's what he wrote in part. He said, in a sense, all knowledge may be viewed as revelational, since meaning is not imposed upon things by the human knower alone, 
but rather is made possible because mankind and the universe are the work of a rational deity who fashioned an intelligible creation. Human knowledge is not a source of knowledge to be contrasted with revelation, but it is a means of comprehending revelation. Thus God, by his eminence, sustains the human knower, even in his moral and cognitive revolt. And without that divine preservation, ironically enough, man could not rebel against God, for he would not exist. And then he says this, Augustine, early, speaking of St. Augustine, early in the Christian centuries, detected what was implied in this conviction that human reason is not the creator of its own object, neither the external world of sensation nor the internal world of ideas is rooted subjectivistic factors alone. So we have been given this truth by God and the knowledge that we have is because God has shown himself to us. He's revealed himself to us. And we come back to this idea again and again. So as we think about it in the context of the Proverbs, the Proverbs are sayings, usually short ones, that give insight into life and to spiritual matters. And they are intended to give us direction in life and to help us live a purposeful life. Now, one thing I want to warn you about in the Proverbs, not just for this study uh, at the moment, but just in general, is that the Proverbs are not intended to be transactional in, in nature. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, they are not absolute promises, meaning that if you do these things, you're always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and everything's going to go your way. It's not transactional in the sense that if we follow this principle or this maxim, that it's going to be the outcome that we want every single time. And the reason being for that is because we live in a sin-fallen world. We apply these things imperfectly. We, it is not a perfect process. The Word's perfect. The promise is perfect. God is perfect. But our application of it is not always perfect. And they are principles for us to live by. And if we live our lives within the framework of these principles, then we're going to be going in the direction that God wants us to go in and we're going to be growing in him. Now you remember that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He became king over Israel when he was a young man. God appears to him in a dream. He promises to give him uh, whatever he asked. He asked God for wisdom, which he granted. And uh, he lays it out here for us in part in what we just read. Knowledge wisely applied affects the choices we make in life. Okay? So, knowledge in and of itself is just information. It's got to be applied. The way we apply the knowledge is wisdom. That's what God gives us in direction. He tells us how to apply the knowledge. And then when we apply the, the, the knowledge wisely, then we make decisions and we make choices about how we're going to live our lives. There's a funny little story I read by way of illustration about a man named Fred. And Fred uh, inherited a bunch of money, millions of dollars, but there were some, some catches. Uh, he had to make some choices, uh, but he made the wrong ones, and not only did he make the wrong ones, but it seemed like nothing broke his way. The will that gave him this uh, particular inheritance provided that he had to go and accept the inheritance either in Brazil or Chile. Obvious fictional story, but still funny all the same. So he chooses Brazil, but it turns out in Chile he would have received his inheritance in land. 
Now, if he had received his inheritance in land, uh, he would have received land on which uranium, gold, and silver had been discovered. But once in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance in coffee or in Brazil nuts. He chose Brazil nuts, and then the market fell out. And he, the, the coffee went up, and he lost everything he had, and, and he didn't have any more resources. So he ends up selling his, his watch for money, and it was enough to buy a plane ticket home. Now, he had to buy a ticket either to New York or to Boston. But he chose Boston, and over the Andes Mountains, one of the engines on the airplane fell off. So he goes up to the pilot, and he says, Sir, I am a jinx. If you want to save the lives of these people, give me a parachute. So the pilot agrees. He gives him the parachute. He jumps out of the plane. The parachute opens, but one of the lines snapped, and down he went. And that was the rest of the story. Now, you might feel like your life is like that sometimes. Am I going to go to Brazil, or am I going to Chile? Am I, am I going to do this, or am I going to do that? And life is a series of choices. And the thing that we learn about life when we implement those choices is that every choice has a consequence. It has an outcome, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. So what we want to do is we want to have the right knowledge, as best we know how, with wisdom to apply to our lives, and a lot of decisions in life, they're not consequential. Like, what you're going to have for breakfast, that's inconsequential. But who you're going to marry is a lot more consequential. You know, what's your vocation going to be? What, what's your, what are your goals in life? And if we can apply knowledge wisely, we can make better choices that will lead to better outcomes. So I want to show you some actions to take in response to God's revelation from Proverbs 2. And the first one is this. Be receptive to knowledge. Be receptive to knowledge. If you will, look again at verse 1. In verse 1 says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you. Now, the postmodern world makes discerning truth from falsehood very difficult for many because the parameters of truth have been moved to suit unbiblical worldviews. And the core idea is that truth is subjective and the objective nature of truth is denied. So it comes out something like this. You have your truth, I have my truth. We just choose whatever truth we want. We choose whatever uh, reality we want. And if this belief is valid, then the people who believe it have no basis at all for offering opinions on a multitude of bad things or atrocities that happen. Because how, if I think that if your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, and I make a value statement or I make a moral statement about something, then who's to say my truth is the right truth or your truth is the right truth if we get to just get to choose what we want to choose? So if you hold to that, that you can just believe whatever you want, then don't tell me anything about anything that's right or wrong. If I come up and shoot you in the face, well, that was my truth. You were bothering me. You, you see where this goes. It's down that road of anything goes. And obviously that's an extreme example, but I want to make a point with that extreme example, is that if we think we can just believe whatever we want, then 
what does it matter? Um, Dr. Neil Burton just demonstrated the logical fallacy of this whole concept uh, when he wrote this. He said, but to believe or assert something is not enough to make it true. Or else the claim that to believe something makes it true would be just as true as the claim that to believe something does not make it true. Again, the argument of the postmodern is self-defeating. I want to go back to my definition of, of what truth is because I think this is an anchor point. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is not whatever I construct it to be. Truth is not whatever my emotion wants it to be or whatever my personal preference wants it to be. If there is such a thing as truth at all, then that's where we're going to find the anchor. And in Proverbs 2, the father figure Solomon speaks uh, of the words found here and of the word of God over all. The word for commands can also mean the laws that God gave his people Israel. And the message in effect is, my son, if you want wisdom, believe in God's word. That's the message. What is our rule for life? Well, the knowledge that God gives us provides our rule for life, and it is a firm foundation. So he says, if you accept my words, what does it mean to accept it? It means to receive it by faith, to take it as it is. In James 1 and verse 5 and 6 says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Derek Kidner said, The search, strenuous as it must be, is not unguided. Its starting point is revelation, specific words and practical commandments. Its method is not one of free speculation, but of treasuring and exploring received teachings so as to penetrate their principles. So he says, store up my commands. That means treasure my commands. Now, most of you remember, uh, I'd say everybody in this room remembers, in some measure at least, uh, Y2K. You remember when Y2K came about, or you at least read about it if you're younger than that. And um, people were worried at the turn of the century that everything was going to melt down. They were worried that there were going to be food shortages and all these other things that were going to happen. Computers weren't going to work. You know, planes going to come out of the sky. I mean, there's all these things that everybody thought was going to happen uh, when that took place. So what did people do? They stored up. I didn't. Just living on the edge. But some people um, stored up canned food, powdered food, dried food, water, drinks that they would keep. Uh, they stored up these things. And why did they do that? Because they wanted to have provision to help avert a hunger disaster. Well, we're told here to store up the commands of God. God gives us his word to guide us, to strengthen us, and to teach us how to live. And in doing that, we're storing these things up in our hearts so that we can process information, we can make sense of the world around us, we can filter things that we're hearing and be able to think logically about them, and on and on I could go. The Word of God has been called a miracle book in this regard. It's miraculous in its origin. It came to us by divine inspiration. It's miraculous in its durability. It's outlasted the opposition 
and uh, survived attempts even to exterminate it. It's miraculous in its results because it transforms hearers and readers and people who take it seriously. The Bible's miraculous in its harmony. It agrees in all of its parts, even though it was written by uh, some 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period of time. It's miraculous in its message because it tells us of God's supernatural power. And it's miraculous in its accuracy and its reliability through the ages. You remember when Paul and his associates went uh, preaching in Thessalonica uh, in the New Testament? Uh, They went teaching the Word of God. And the people did not just hear the Word as coming from Paul or the others, but they accepted it as the Word of God himself. And there's a key there. Because if your concept is that the Bible contains the Word of God, then that's a whole altogether different matter. Because if you think the Bible only contains the Word of God, then what that does is that puts you in judgment over it, and now you've got to be smart enough to figure out which parts contain the Word of God and which parts are just a human construct. But if you see it as a divine book, as a gift from God, then you're going to see it as something that has come from God Himself. And when Paul was in the synagogue at Thessalonica, he reasoned with them from the scriptures and he explained to them and he he gave them evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And the people in turn accepted the scriptures as God's word, so Paul used it to reason with them. But then you remember what happened when he went to Athens and he preached to the philosophers on, on Mars Hill? He used an altogether different approach, but he made the same point. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 and 31, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all men, all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul was constantly thankful to God when people received the word of God. He was thankful to God when the uh, Thessalonians responded favorably uh, to the word of God. And he repeatedly referred to the message as the gospel of God three different times in 1 Thessalonians. Why does he refer to it as the gospel of God? Because God's the source of it. It didn't come from human origins. It came from God. And he also referred to it as the word or as the word of the Lord. And the focus ultimately is on Jesus, who is the word. And here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Every time the Word of God is read or preached, every time, it's either received or it's rejected. There's no middle ground. Either you believe it, you receive it by faith, or you don't. Now here again is a big contrast, even in Christianity today, and people who profess to know the Lord in churches that profess to represent the Lord. Some accept the word on faith and believe it to be true and believe that it is the guide for life and for our practice and for our relationship with God. Other people, not so much. 
they've got the parts figured out that they actually agree with and the ones that they don't. And therein lies the problem. Attentive ears and a receptive attitude bring the Word of God to bear in our lives. Somebody said the Bible will warm you if you're cold, it'll wake you if you're asleep, it'll warn you if you're backslidden, it'll wash you if you're defiled, it'll whip you if you're disobedient, it'll witness to you if you're doubtful, and it'll win you if you're unsaved. The Bible is our counselor, directed by the Holy Spirit, our companion, our comfort when we're depressed or when we're hurting or when we're grieving, we're, we're at a time of loss. It's our candle in the dark. It's our compass for direction. And it helps us when we have those decisions to be made. So knowledge then requires belief. Belief is necessary. It's essential. And if truth is that which corresponds to reality and not just a human construct or or a matter of our own preference or emotion, then we want to believe things as they actually are. We don't want to be lied to. Knowledge is classically defined as justified true belief. So there's alignment between the truth of a proposition and the reasoning that we have to believe it. So think about it this way. Epistemology ultimately deals with statements of belief. Knowledge entails belief, and so belief cannot contradict knowledge. Be receptive to truth even if you don't fully understand it. Take it on faith. Ask God to help you so that you can grow in it and deepen in your understanding of his word and of his character. And then the second action is be responsive to knowledge. And I pick back up now in verse 2 and 3. He says, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding. So to get knowledge, to get wisdom, we need to hear it with our ears. We need to accept it with our hearts. And we need to agree with it in our lives. We need to open ourselves up and let God's word sink deeply into our lives. So we don't want God's word to go in one ear and out the other. Uh, but instead, we want it to go into our ear, ears, into our minds, and down deep into our hearts. And uh, we all know what it's like to talk to somebody, or, or maybe even we've had it said to us, uh, you're not listening to me. And that should not be the case when it comes to our intake of the Bible. We should be listening to what God has to say. And he says, directing your heart to understanding. This implies that it takes effort. I mean, like, you've got to apply these things to your lives. And in these few verses, Solomon describes the many ways that we must seek after wisdom. Receive it, treasure it, incline it, our hearts toward it, apply it, cry out, lift up your voice. Seek it, search it, find it. And in Hebrew, the heart is where you're, you make many choices that are motivated by your desires. In fact, the Bible mentions the issue of the heart a thousand times. You think it's important? Of course it is. Your heart is where your affections are centered. And that's why it's called the desires of your heart. Because that's where it comes from. In Psalm 37 and verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The human heart was created to mirror the heart of God. The human heart is intended 
to love God, to love righteousness, and to walk with God by faith. I love how uh, Joseph Stoll put it. He was the longtime uh, president of the Moody Bible Institute, and he said, the heart is used in Scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is the part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole, including his feelings, desires, passions, thoughts, understanding, and will. And at the center of a person is the place which God turns. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, you can't think much about the heart without not also thinking about what Jeremiah has to say about it. You remember the prophet Jeremiah? He believed the heart was fundamentally broken in a spiritual sense. In fact, he said the heart is deceitful above all. It is desperately wicked. It is irreversibly sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? So the point being is that our own heart, the human heart, as the seed of the emotion, it can fool us. It can lead us astray. It can lie to us. It can tell us things that aren't true, that aren't helpful. And that's why we got to constantly have it lined up with the Word and, and guided by the Spirit. And Jeremiah was a man who watched a generation turn away from God. And the human heart, in its natural condition, is deceitful. It's evil. It's separated from God. And again, this is a fundamental misunderstanding by many people when they believe that people are basically good. Spiritually speaking, as it relates to righteousness, people are not spiritually good. There are none who are righteous, not even one, Paul tells us. We have nothing to offer God that would be acceptable to him that he has not first given to us. So the hope for us is transformation. It's redemption. It's a renewal of the human heart. It's a spiritual circumcision. In Romans 10 and verse 10 says, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So what happens is when we are born again, God gives us a new heart. And then we live our lives, if we're being sanctified and we're growing in the likeness of Christ, we live the rest of our lives asking God to align our heart with his heart. We're not trying to align God's heart with our heart. We're trying to align our heart with God's heart. And God's heart's always going to be consistent with what God's revelation is. And again, this is why epistemology is so important. Because what we know uh, makes a difference into how we wisely apply it and then how we live our lives. He says, call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding. I believe calling out is a cry for discernment. And discernment is the ability to distinguish between things. And lifting your voice means to give it for the sake of understanding. And the word for understanding here means insight into many things. And I think part of virtuous living is seeking to pass that knowledge on from one generation to the next. And this metaphor of calling out or raising your voice implies that you're communicating with somebody else. And there's two sides of it. It's the person calling out in their effort to seek insight. And then it's the information that they receive being beneficial to others. So if you're going down a rabbit trail and you're being misled and you're being betrayed by things that are not true, then, and you buy into that, 
and you're gullible, then you're going to lead other people astray. And that's why we've got to come back to this anchor and be responsive to the knowledge that God has given us. And then the third action is to be resolute in knowledge. And now we look at verses 4 through 6. You'll note the word here, seek. It's to look for something just like people would mine for precious metals. What is emphasized is the diligent effort that is required to obtain wisdom. He says like hidden treasure. That's something that is hidden like valuables that are in the ground, um, a hidden treasure in the sea. And the secret of it is to go to where you think it is and to search it out. And what we're doing is we're searching out what God has given to us so that we can understand it better. Job put it this way. He said in Job 28 verse 12, Well, where can wisdom be found and where is understanding located? No one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. But understand the way to wisdom and know its location. And then, as the proverb says here, the fear of the Lord will be understood and you'll discover the knowledge of God. So note the logical consequence of following after knowledge and of obeying wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the same thing as Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. And an understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. And if you do that, you'll know how to respect the authority of the Lord. And he says very plainly here, it's the Lord that gives wisdom. So again, revelatory epistemology. Knowledge that's been revealed to us by God. He's the source of it. And this is such a helpful passage because it explains what renewal, where renewal comes from. And God's not saying, if you, if you seek me, then I'm going to love you more. But what he is saying if you, is, if you seek me, you will find me. And for all that I am worth, you can know God personally in ways that will help you and will guard your life. So wisdom is not ultimately, knowledge is not ultimately a matter of discovery. It's a matter of revelation. And we need to be resolute in knowledge. I'll tell you what we need today. We need people who are not ashamed of the gospel. We need people who are not afraid of the truth. We need people who are courageous enough to say it, to call it as it is, and to stand on it. And what has happened in so many cases is that a lot of Christians are absolutely as soft as butter on what they believe. And they're not willing to hold on to anything because they're afraid of what somebody else is going to think about them. Well, if you have that conviction, you're just going to be seen as mean and judgmental and critical and all, all these other labels that they give you. But we better be holding on to something that's steady and firm. Otherwise, we'll be tossed to and fro is what the Scripture says. We'll build our house on the sand, and when the storm comes... It'll just blow it away. And we can do that with kindness. We can do that with love. But I'm telling you, we better do it with conviction and be resolute in knowledge because we are constantly being pushed back on and marginalized and more and more. I don't know if you saw, even just this past week, our new speaker of the house is a born-again Christian. I don't know anything about the man. I don't know about his spiritual condition and all that. But listen, he has absolutely been marginalized and beaten this week uh, uh, metaphorically speaking because he said if you want to know what my worldview is go get a bible off of the shelf and you'll find it in there 
It's okay to marginalize a Christian. It's okay to marginalize somebody that says that they believe the Bible. It's okay to marginalize somebody that says that they believe in life and these other issues. And that's the, that's the environment that we're living in. And we need more people who would be willing to step into the arena and say, I'm not ashamed of what I believe. These are my convictions. And this is still a free country. And I can hold to these convictions. And I can stand on these convictions and not be belittled because of them or marginalized because of them. And more and more, this, these are going to be the issues. I, I know many of you are dealing with these issues at work. And the things that you have to deal with that are certain conditions and things that, that you have to constantly think through what your ethics are and how you're going to respond to these things and how you're going to interact with them and what are you going to say about them and how far can you go. I mean, I know it is a, it's the Wild West out there as it relates to all this stuff. Uh, so I don't take this lightly. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this series is to help you think through what is that framework going to be and how am I going to take a stand in a culture that no longer uh, would be favorable in many ways toward what we believe. Now I want to close with verses 7 through 9 and some concluding principles of biblical epistemology. Here's what it says in verses 7 through 9. He stores up success for the upright. He's a shield for those who live with integrity so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his faithful followers. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, and integrity, every good path. Verses 7 through 9 are the outcome of embracing verses 1 through 6. Now let me give you some concluding principles here for uh, biblical epistemology. The first is, God is the ultimate knower. I don't use that word very often. In fact, I looked it up to make sure it was a word. Um, but God is the ultimate knower. Like anything there is to know, God knows it. And he knew it first, and nothing ever occurred to him. He's the ultimate knower. Then God created all other knowers. So we are created in the image of God to know God and to know um, his character and his truth. God has revealed himself so that we can have knowledge of him. We come back to this revelatory epistemology. And then the last principle is that God's word is the highest epistemic authority. It's the highest authority that we could appeal to and hold on to. And that's what we need in our lives. That's what we need in this church. That's what we need to hold on to because God has revealed it to us so that we can know him and make him known. Now, here's the sad fact if, uh, of, of what it would be if we um, either don't hold the truth or don't communicate the truth to others. If we don't hold the truth, we're going to suffer the consequences of it in our own spiritual lives. But then, if God is good and the gospel is true and we can be forgiven and we can know God, we can live for God, there's actually an eternity, all these different things that we believe, then will we not want to communicate that to other people? Would we not want to build our lives on it and help them build their lives on it as well? And, and I think that was Paul's mentality. Once Paul encountered the risen Christ and he was dramatically transformed, he was never the same. He, he couldn't stay quiet. And no matter where he went, whether it was in the synagogue or the marketplace or anywhere else, he was bold in the truth. And God used him, but I'd also remind you, it ultimately cost him his life. And we're not promised an easy road. 
We're not promised that everybody's going to embrace. In fact, Jesus said in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Expect it. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to shrink back? Or are you going to live faithfully and you're going to live with some courage for the Lord? That's what I want to do. And I, I want to make a difference in this generation and beyond. And I can tell you, if you don't even know what truth is, you can't do that. And I, and I said it time and again, but I'll say it again. If I did not believe that this book was true, I would not do what I do. Because what would be the point? If I thought I was smarter than God, why would I even go through the motions? Why would it matter? But if I believe God is, and he's shown himself to us, and he can be known, and I believe all those things, then I want to live in that truth. And I want my life to correspond to that which corresponds to reality. Father, we thank you tonight that you are the God who gives all knowledge and wisdom. You are the definer of truth.